0: And you are tuned to WPKN in Bridgeport. My name is Richard Hill. This is First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio. And we have an interesting program tonight in celebration of Black History Month. We're going to kick it off with an interview with Bishop John Selders, Assistant Dean of Students at Trinity College. And he is also the co-founder of Moral Mondays Connecticut, there is that amazing track from uh, Myrna Summers, recorded back in 1970. And you, that's some raw power. Well, right now, I want to welcome to the WPKN, First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio, I want to welcome John Selders. John, are you with us? I am, Brother
1: Richard. You took me back to 1970. (laughs) Myrna Summers, who is a musician, and and I I know her. We're not good friends, but we met many, many years ago, and her church was Refreshing Springs Church of God in Christ in Washington, D.C. I know that song. I know her. And you took me all the way back to my beginnings, or near about my
0: beginnings. I hope I didn't bring you you down to tears, because last night we were listening to this at home. And I promise you we were both we were both blubbering by the end of it. It's there's some God gave me a song that
1: it, the angels cannot sing. I've been redeemed. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I know that song. I mean it, it I know that song very well in that that moment in time. So bless you for doing that. That blessed me tonight.
0: Absolutely. I appreciate the words. Well, I just want to introduce you, uh, Bishop John Selders. He is the right Reverend Dr. John Selders. He's an ordained minister serving in the United Church of Christ. And do correct me if I haven't kept up with your resume, because you are, you're a man on the move, and I know sometimes you got new things coming on that I'm a little behind the eight ball. But anyway, he's the organizing pastor of Amistad United Church of Christ in Hartford. He's the uh, former associate college chaplain at Trinity College and currently the assistant dean of students. Just another word or two about uh, Bishop Selders, he is the co-founder of Mall Monday Connecticut, which is a grassroots statewide organization committed to a wide range of social justice issues. He's traveled across the country speaking, lecturing, conducting workshops in the area of race, oppression, reproductive justice. He's a teacher, he's a lecturer, workshop leader, an HIV-AIDS educator and activist with numerous citations for his work. Now, since this is relevant, especially to tonight, as we look back on this last momentous, cataclysmic, but also year of coming together of such power of people in the streets. You were originally from St. Louis. You actually were, I guess, shuttling back and forth between uh, Ferguson and and Connecticut after the killing of Michael Brown and the uprising that followed in Ferguson. You were there to advocate and organize for justice and change. So I am so pleased to have you back. You've, You've been here several times before. We would be remiss, Dr. Selders, if we did not Begin by discussing your overall reaction to the defeat of Trump and his illegal attempts to overturn the results of the election, actually, led to the horrific events of January 6th. His attempts to overturn the election actually started before the election, but continued with a vengeance right up until the inauguration of Joseph Biden and Kamala Harris. So, why don't we begin with just your off-the-top reaction to these events, and where do you think we stand as a democracy right now?
1: Thank you again, uh, Richard. I I appreciate very much your introduction. You were all correct. Everything is current. You were right on the money. (laughs) And I also, again, thank you for taking me to church, taking the bishop to (laughs) church. I appreciate very much Myrna Summers and and that number. Uh, God gave me a song. I I hadn't thought about that song in many, many years. So I appreciate that. This moment... We're in now. Let me answer your question. One, like everybody, there was a sense of, oh, my gosh, just a kind of, you know, a kind of, you know, we hadn't breathed in a little while. (laughs) And so at the so help me God moment of now President Joe Biden, there was a, a, a sigh of relief, if you will, that maybe we could take just a beat and say, the wicked witch is dead, to coin a phrase and quote a phrase from the Wizard of Oz, (laughs) that there had come a moment where uh, the nightmare had ended. Now we got to deal with the aftermath. And of course, we certainly have to do that and call people to account and call for justice to be served in the aftermath and the response of what has been an awful period of time. And certainly History will look back on these times and moments and say, boy, that was a tough, bad time uh, for many. Now, having said all of that, I also would be, I would, it would be short-sighted not to also reflect that this country has been through bad times before. We've survived it. In fact, I think history reminds us that we fought a civil war, the North versus the South. You know? and 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 of course the the mythology is it was for states' rights. That's the mythology. Actually, we fought a war over white supremacy and racism and what to do with slavery and the stain of slavery. But you want to talk, call it states' rights? Okay, all right, all right. But 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 in the aftermath of that Civil War, we got the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendment that we have still yet really not lived up totally too. So this moment reflects for me what our history has been and the stain of white supremacy and its, its, its action on racism, what it, it has brought to account and continues to bring to account that we've got to really deal with the fact that some people have ascribed value and some people have been ascribed lesser value based on the color of their skin. That's what white supremacy is, and we've got to deal with that. That's my first reaction, my opening reaction. I hope it wasn't too much.
0: No, I'm sure we'll be able to vent a little bit more on that one. But I do want to say that I've heard the events of January 6th described in many different ways. An insurrection, a riot, a an expression of free speech by some have actually said called it that. But... The one I think I'm most comfortable with is to describe the people that came, the leaders, the movers, the people that were actually had an agenda as they entered the halls of Congress and went about committing mayhem and God knows what other crimes they may have committed if things had broken a slightly different way. But to call them neo-Confederates, I think, for me, is the most appropriate Term for them, neo-Confederates. And what they did was they came and they planted the Confederate flag in Congress, something that they did not succeed in doing during the Civil War. When you go back, as you said, refer back to the Civil War, that this was a reassertion of the values and the goals of the Confederacy in an attempt to just to push it into the faces of the governing body of this nation and try to say, we're coming. We're going to come back. And when we come back, we are going to be more fully armed and better prepared to actually fight a battle here.
1: My reaction is, well, you, you, that, that, those are very kind and generous words. I call it a hillbilly mob. <laughs> let, let me be very clear. You, you know, jammed up by ignorant, single-minded, single-brained individuals and groups who had nothing else on their mind but to wreak havoc because they didn't get their way. They reminded me, the the mass group of them, reminded me of uh, infants that are two, three, four years old having a tantrum. When you don't get your way, you fall out in the middle of the store, you fall out, you know, and, and your mom and dad say, get up little Johnny, you know. But these were grown men, 40, 50, 60 years old. They had their, They had the war clothes on. Um, One of those jokers had on a, a hat with horns coming out. It looked about as wild and as crazed as one could look. And yet these were these were citizens of this United States who, in fact, felt entitled To enter into the sacred halls of this country and say, none of you people who we've elected to be here belong here. This is our house, and it's our house to berate and parade and masquerade as if we own it. It was an attempt at messaging something, because I don't call it a coup, because if it were really a coup, it would have been better coordinated quite frankly. But it was an attempt at a coup-like, a coup d'etat-like event, in that there was the barging of the gates, there was the, this summoning of all of these forces, and there was money behind it. There was there an was organized, at least in part, effort to do harm and damage. They were looking for people to hang, as I understand. They were looking for, for people that they identified would, be, would, would take the hit, if you will, that would be killed or tortured or at least ap- apprehended or abducted. In much the same way, the, the mass group that got together to try to make an attempt on the governor of Michigan's life mm. and her family. So uh, it, there is something that has a foot now that we ought not to shake a shake a nodding well I know and move on very quickly I I find it just just apparent and and awfully awfully troubling to me that those who even claimed a bit of yeah this was a bad thing now are seemingly backpedaling from that I mean the leaders of uh, of the Republican Party who are reasserting the, their efforts to be in alignment with the former president and that ideology, it deeply, deeply troubles me that who I would have once believed could possibly be fair-minded individuals now seem to be crazed or seem to be uh, somehow mis- not misled, seem to be choosing to own and to articulate an ideology that is so far from what is the truth, the reality. They seem to be living on Mars, or or the moon at least, not here in the United States on Earth.
0: We're speaking with Bishop John Selders. He is the Assistant Dean of Students at Trinity College. He's been kind enough to join us tonight on this second day of Black History Month Actually, I wanted to get your sense of the fact that there's been this universal horror at what happened on January 6th. What I want to know is, back in 2016, leading up to the election, we knew a lot about Donald Trump back then. He was Mm -hmm. trumpeting it from the hilltops. The media was blaring it everywhere. He was acting like an idiot. He was a clown. He was a carnival barker. He was a phony and a fraud. All that stuff had been exposed. His racism had been exposed. His xenophobia had been exposed. It was all out there on the table. And yet the voter turnout in that election reflected a lack of perhaps alarm or interest or hope from people of color so that they didn't turn out in the numbers enough to defeat him in key states in the Midwest. So, for example, in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, African-American voters turned out in far fewer numbers than they had in 2012. What I want to know is what happened in this four years? What did he reveal to us that we didn't already know that affected African-American voters and Latino voters to the extent that they really deliver the election for joseph biden this is what i think
1: i believe you're right there was really probably nothing new that we discovered in these four years that we didn't know prior to the orange man's uh ascendancy into the white house right probably not too much we we kind of knew especially those of us from the northeast here Uh, we, we we've known him for a very long time i think what there were a couple of things in operation. There was a kind of deflation uh, coming out of the Obama administration and the Obama years. You know there was a such a high that uh, two thousand and eight gifted us with and then and then we kind of resurrected it again in two thousand and twelve in his second term, and all of the partisan rancor that led us to um, the moment that the candidate we picked to oppose him was not a really good choice, was the heir apparent maybe Mm -hmm. for some, was a particular kind, but was a throwback to, you know, yesteryear, Clinton, right? So I think maybe there was a part of that that wasn't compelling. But I think also he was such the fool, he was such the jester, he was such the person that one could he can't be president, so i think I think there was an a there was an assumption that um Secretary Clinton was going to get the gig, and we were going to have to deal with the in the aftermath of her getting the gig and lo and behold, to our surprise, I think in fact didn't we talk election night Yes, you know,
0: we did, yes we did. <laughs> I remember that. We were, there, we were there exposed to all the world trying to deal with those numbers as they were coming in.
1: As they were coming in, I was like, Lord, we we need, we need some help here. And I was hopeful. But as the night wore on, it, it became clear this dude is going to win. So I think we could not have known what we now know what those years, what he would actually do with not only being in the seat of power with the nuclear codes really? but right so that's a whole thing of uh in and of itself but also the kind of awful policy maker he and his team were and the desperate pain and suffering they evoked and invoked during these last four years that i think it you know it became clear okay we got to get some sense so and i think on you know to be fair on the other side there were others like Dog it we're going to get out here and yeah he's he's kind of he's kind of off a little bit but for us the alternative is just as awful so this election this, this last past uh, presidential election it, we had the biggest participation of any election in the history of presidential elections. Right? Yeah. So it did, you know, for purposes of taking a look at who we are as citizens in this nation, we got to really look at who we are straight in the face and re- literally really come to terms with the fact that we are as divided as we have ever been. That You know, God bless now President Biden speaking of unity. But we are as divided as we could ever be. It's, in many ways, we haven't left the Civil War, ergo the yeah. Confederate flag being spiked in the halls of Congress. That war is still raising in in many people's minds. And so I think it is, it is now the opportunity. And I speak to you here in what some would call at least reasonable Connecticut. I, I don't necessarily want to call it liberal Connecticut, because I think that's a farce. We're more purple than anything else. Uh, while, while our urban centers are, are fairly democratic, many of our smaller towns and rural Connecticut is still very, very, I would call it conservative, but it's not quite that. I don't know what this is that's on the other side. And if you didn't know it by now, those of you listening, I'm, 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 I'm on the left. And there's a, there's a side that's on the right, and I don't quite know— Because much of what I hear articulated doesn't have reasonability. I'm okay if we disagree about policy, if we disagree about how to solve some things. And you want to come at it from one way, and I want to come at it from another way. And yet, when I hear many of them talk, it's as if we're living in two different universes, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic where millions of people are being affected economically and health-wise, and you want to act like it you know it's just a walk in the park right so the, the these arguments I'm hearing you know this has been the most this has been in many instances the cleanest election we've ever had, yet there are still people touting the fact that the orange man was cheated out of an election. Are you kidding me there's there's no credibility to that, you know i mean there just isn't so I don't even know how to have a conversation with some of the folk. One of my friends who was uh, elected in this latest election, her name is Cory Bush. She's oh, our yeah. congresswoman, Cory Bush. She's from St. Louis. She's a friend of mine. We know her. She's from St. Louis, from our hometown. She represents the district I grew up in. And Corey is now the most hostile workplace she's ever had to exist in. Happens to be the, hall of, the halls of Congress <laughs> right now, where <laughs> she's under threat and under harassment from another member of Congress who espouses Q9 rhetoric and foolishness, and I'll call it that. I, I don't know what to do with that, Richard. I don't know, I don't know how we make peace that when we're not even on the same page and that's I guess that's what I want to lift up I'm ready to come to the table and let's talk about the real problems that we have in this country in this state in your town And in my town and let's come let's come to try to solve it Let's come to try to fix it and some of this stuff We did it didn't get it didn't take us 24 hours to get into so I understand that it may take us some time to get out of But let's go there other than trying to relitigate what's already relitigate an election, it's already done. Certified. Yeah. And he's now in office. Yet we want to still point back to that. Yeah. I don't know what you mean.
0: Well said. Well said. No, you've, you you brought it into focus for me again. I try to forget that there is this head on collision between the people, as you said, that are reasonable, who know how to count, who can uh, accept reality, and this huge contingent of people who are in denial about that. But in the moments yeah. we have left, Bishop Soldiers, I, I want to actually get your sense of, since you did have involvement in the battle for justice for Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, in the summer and fall of 2014, how you see the evolution of the awareness of racial oppression. Given the mass movement that erupted after the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmad Arbery, and many others, but it came to a head with George Floyd, were you surprised by the power of that movement and the interracial character of the massive demonstrations that took place. And how important do you think that interracial solidarity will be going forward in the post-Trump era as we come to grips with this on the other side, people who are ready to do violence to the leaders of our country, but also to probably anybody else who gets in their way?
1: Well, thank you for for the question. I think it is a, a, an extremely relevant recognition that... What happened last summer in the reaction to uh, George Floyd, and thank you for naming Breonna Taylor and uh, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, I think they they go together, much like the modern-day civil rights movement in Montgomery. When you mention it, you have to mention uh, Plessy versus Board of Education repeal, which was Brown versus Board of Education in in that same year, and the death of Emmett Till. They go together right? That then spawned a movement. I think what what happened last summer had something to do with the fact that we were also reacting to COVID-19. All of us had been locked down. (laughs) And I think there's something in the collective psyche that says, okay, that's it. We got to hit the streets. I, I know for me, while I was, you know, as, as concerned as anyone about the nature of COVID and we, there were still lots of questions uh, that had not been answered due to the ineptness of the, the, the administration at the time, it was also now the time not to be at home, but to be in the streets. And yes, it had this, this universality, this universal appeal that, quite frankly, I don't know THAT WE CAN EVER SUSTAIN IN A SUSTAINED WAY, BECAUSE QUITE FRANKLY, MANY PEOPLE WERE RESPONDING TO THE MOMENT. I WAS AT A NUMBER OF THE, the RALLIES, A NUMBER OF THE MARCHES, A NUMBER OF THE ACTIONS HERE IN AND AROUND THE STATE OF CONNECTICUT. And there was lots of—this wasn't just about Black Lives Matter. It was about the lack of leadership at, at the highest level of our government. It was also about a time for folk to come out and counter that with the kind of white supremacy rhetoric that we encountered. We, we were, in fact, invited down to Waterbury and, and had people from a motorcycle bike club roll up on us in numbers that match the numbers of us uh, attending the rally and the action, who, who were there to protect, listen to this, the, to protect the Columbus, Christopher Columbus statue that was on the same grounds. I mean, what we weren't there about Christopher Columbus and, and taking down the, the statue. I know that was a part of some of what was going on in other places, but that wasn't why we were there in Bay. We were there just to gather as community, to, to have a moment to reflect about the deaths and how that has impacted people in Waterbury. And yet we had to turn our attention to these other counter protesters, if you will. So I I think there. if you hear what I'm saying there, there were a number of things that were active and going on. And I think they still are there. That presence of a kind, the incivility that exists, but also the need for folk to do something. And I think we got to, you know, we got to be smart about how do we capture that? How do we at, at, at least help to shape it or frame it so that that energy is directed in the right way, because that could go way wrong, as we saw on January 6th, almost a month ago, in Washington, D.C. Energy got directed in a particular way that was dangerous and cost lives.
0: Absolutely. Well, finally, Dr. Seldes, I just want to ask you this question. In the face of the pandemic, uh, the, the November 3rd election and the protracted battle by Trump to overturn the results, the focus on the movement for Black Lives has slipped from the mainstream media. And I'm just wondering how you regard that situation and what do you think should happen now with Black Lives Matter and all the other groups that participated in those millions of people who were in the streets. Let me tell you something. The first night when I saw those demonstrations in Minnesota and I saw that there were probably, I don't know, 30 percent? of the people in the streets were Caucasian, and the rest were people of color. I said to myself, you know, I haven't seen this in my lifetime. I haven't seen this kind of interracial solidarity. But the news media kind of didn't even notice the first night. But after the first night, when it repeated over and over again, and more and more white people joined in, and it became a movement of a rainbow movement for justice as you so eloquently stated not just about police issues not just about you know the killings of these specific people but about the way a society needs to be organized what needs to be corrected and dismantled and replaced with systems of justice as opposed to systems of oppression so i'm just wondering where does black lives matter go now how does that pretty stunning coalition and uh demonstration of solidarity, how does it reinvigorate itself going forward now that the Wicked Witch is dead and we have a, an administration that at least is listening?
1: So the movement didn't go anywhere. You know, you have these flashpoints, or what I would call inflection points, where something will happen and people will roll out on the street. I believe AOC, or our sister and friend uh, Cori Bush, uh, or Jamal Bowman, the Congressman, who's who, who's a part of the freshman class in, in Congress, are extensions of the work and the movement. That the movement is afoot. The, the civil rights movement had these inflection points. You you had Montgomery, and then it seemed that they seemed to go nowhere. But they were they were off doing all kinds of work, and then we had the March on Washington. But right before the March on Washington, if you remember, we had Birmingham, and Dr. King was arrested. And it was at that point in April and May of 1963, he wrote his, what I would call his, his gospel called the Letter from Birmingham Jail, in response to those religious people who were asking him to tone it down and just wait. We, you know, it, we're going to get there eventually. And he said, I can't wait, right? And and, and, he, and he gifted us with uh, the action plan that many of us continue to refer to as it relates to taking occupant and, and doing action on the street. It was then, after that, we had the March on Washington. And in the aftermath of that, it was the, the the bombing of those four little girls in in Birmingham, for example. That was September. So the March on Washington was, was August 1963. The four little girls were killed two weeks later. And so I think the work continues to happen. While it may not be center stage in actions on the street, the work that, that the Movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter are prosecuting is in the halls of Congress. They're in the, in, in, right here in Connecticut in the way we are organizing ourselves and thinking about what does real political change uh, mean in the context uh, of this new moment. We got a governor here who needs to be pushed. We got, a, we got a state legislature who now, after the passing of a groundbreaking police accountability law, bill into law, now wanna, they want to lock back down the vote and not expand it you know, in the way it needs to be expanded, for example. So there is continued work to be done, and I think work happens on, at every level. There are moments when these inflection points call for us to hit the streets yet there are other moments where it calls for us to do the deep deep inner work on ourselves and in the relationship to the the communities that we live. While also at the same time doing the, the good old, poli- the good old hard political work to make sure that that we, we, we ensure the right to vote for every single person in this state, that that we get good health care for everybody that needs good health care, that that we, we we hold on to the minimum wage and that continues, and obviously bring relief to those who are suffering because of COVID. So I think the work continues. It just looks different depending yeah. on the issue and depending on the times. We now are. Here.
0: I find that very helpful and enlightening for my own peace of mind to hear it put that way. And I want to thank you so much, uh, Bishop John Selders, for joining us tonight here again on First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio. This has been a great way for me to kick off the celebration of, of this month that really, in my own sense of inspiration, continues throughout the year. So thanks so much for, for taking time. And we, we really should not let four years go by. Before our next conversation. <laughs> so,
1: uh, Absolutely, there's so much to talk
0: much. about. Time is always uh, up against us. But thank you so much for what you have done for us tonight here.
1: Thank you very much. We look forward to it.
0: Thank you. Bye bye. That's Bishop John Selders. He is the Assistant Dean of Students at Trinity College, and he is also the co founder of Mall Mondays Connecticut.